Welcome to Interchange. Our show is The Past is Uncertain. Our opening song is Billy Bragg's version of the International. Stand up, all victims of oppression, for the tyrants fear your might. Don't cling so hard to your possessions, for you have nothing if you have no rights. It's October 24th, 2017. Nearly 100 years ago to the day in 1917, Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov became chairman of the Council of People's Commissars in Russia. Ulyanov is better known to us as Lenin. Michel Foucault said in 1977 that it is the desirability of the revolution which causes a problem today. Well, that today being 40 years ago, and Foucault's today being 60 years on from the Russian Revolution, we might ask, is revolution still desirable in 2017? And what shall we wish to turn over? Today begins a three-part series looking at the Russian Revolution, and as is our want in historical matters, we shorthand this by focusing on three primary characters in this particular drama. Lenin, Trotsky, and Stalin. All pen names, or nom de politique. We will note that the revolution began as a popular workers' uprising in February on Women's Day and was in large part a spontaneous development instigated by women workers in factories. Which is to say it had nothing specifically to do with Lenin or Trotsky and certainly nothing to do with Stalin. But for most of us, history is necessarily a shorthand subject. Who has time to spend years unraveling the past? And anyway, Depending on what thread you pull in the weave, what's revealed always seems to change, sometimes subtly, sometimes drastically, and always in relation to where you stand in time and space, that is to say, in your political moment. If nothing else, the Russian Revolution reveals the uses of history for ideological purposes, for Russia's communism is the counterclaim to capitalism in world historical narrative. In that way, the success or failure of a system comes prepackaged. But these are vulgar simplifications of things. Today's show is in two parts. We'll open by looking at a particular historiography of the Russian Revolution, and then we'll turn to Lenin, who is perhaps the founding father of communism in Russia. Joining me in the studio today for part one of The Past is Uncertain is Alex Lichtenstein. Alex is a professor in the Department of History at Indiana University and editor of the American Historical Review. He's joined us previously to discuss the work of photographer Margaret Bourke-White, and he'll be joining us in the future to discuss his most recent work, a book co-written with his brother Andrew called Marked, Unmarked, Remembered, A Geography of American Memory. Welcome back to Interchange, Alex Lichtenstein. Thanks for having me back. Alex, you joined us, uh, I don't know how long ago it was, but uh, joined us for the Margaret Burke White Show. 
Yeah, maybe a year and a half ago. Was it that long ago? Yeah, the book came out a year and a half ago. I enjoyed that. It was a good book as well. Thank you. Alex, um, you're joining me tonight because we're going to talk a little bit about the way that we frame revolution in some sense, the way that we frame history also. And we have to make a correction right off the bat, right, Alex? Uh, In the intro, I spoke of this, the 24th of October, being close to the day of Lenin taking over as um, I forget, president or something of the the committee of Comus well of the official date of yeah. the Bolshevik right. revolution, right? right? So, so uh, yeah, this is not the right date though, because yeah. November seventh is the date on the. <laughs> we kept getting this back and forth mixed up, but on, on today's calendar, on the modern Russian calendar as well, but the Russian calendar, nineteen seventeen, I guess, was thirteen days. Behind. Right. Uh, so. the, apparently, they were on the Julian calendar, and we are on the Gregorian calendar, and they changed that along with their system of living. And, and yet, it's still called and has always been called the October Revolution, not the November Revolution. Well. So they changed the calendar, but not the notion of, of what the revolution meant. There was a lot, lot of revolution that year, though. Right? It's not just the October Revolution. There's a whole lot of revolution going on, February forward. Well, exactly. I mean, one of the things uh, that we don't always understand about the Russian Revolution is it was really two revolutions. Uh, now I should preface this by saying, as, as I warned you before coming on the show, I'm not an expert in Russian history. Uh, I come to this really in my job as editor of the American Historical Review, and I've been thinking because of the 100th anniversary of the October Revolution Uh, about how the American Historical Review might consider uh, what 1917 has meant over that past century. But the first thing, as I went back through back issues, was to recall that there were really two revolutions, the Mm -hmm. February Revolution and the October Revolution, and they had different character. And so one of the questions historians seem to ask is, how did you get from the February Revolution to the October Revolution, which is what brought Lenin and the Bolsheviks to power? Mm. Yeah, if you if you go to your bookstore right now or you go to Amazon or you go to however you get to books and information, you'll find several new books on the revolution. Uh, Paula Blanc has one coming out, October Song. China Mieville has a, a book called October. Um, Neil Faulkner has a book called The People's History of the Russian Revolution. Laura Engelstein has another <laughs> so, one. Uh, so there there was a terrific yeah. exhibit at the British Library yeah. over the past year, uh, which is all the artwork from the Russian Revolution. So 1917... Uh, historians love centenary years, <laughs> right. uh, and in fact, uh, I realized uh, that there was not a single article on the Russian Revolution in the nineteen seven, the twenty seventeen volume of the mm. American Historical Review, which is one of the reasons I sort of dig an ar- did an archival dig mm. back okay. into our pages to see what mm-hmm. we had published. That's on it pretty in the cool. Past. So you, as editor, went back and and just tried to find out what kinds of. Um, uh, articles were written in your in in the journal you now edit, American Historical Review. Um, the first one you come up with uh, is this the first one? Isaiah Berlin is the yeah, first one. Yeah, I mean there might have been a mention here and there, mm-hmm. but the first substantive article about the Russian Revolution wasn't published in the American Historical Review anyway until 1949. So historians were definitely behind the times. I mean this was the the by 19 American by, historians uh, anyway. American historians, yeah, right. right? Well, the American Historical Review publishes work from all over mm, the world. Okay. But uh, so 32 years after the Russian Revolution, the journal saw fit to publish a, a piece recognizing that it might have been of world <laughs> historical importance. But eventually we get around to it. So, uh, But by then it could be declared history, right? So, yeah. And you can <laughs> review it. And you can review it, <laughs> right, right. So the uh, the Berlin Review is, uh, actually the Berlin writes a review of Bertram Wolff's Three Who Made Revo- Made a Revolution. That's, of course, uh, Lenin 
Stalin and Trotsky. Um, right. So I, you know, it's this is great fun as editor to go back and look through back issues. So as I said, the first thing that surprised me was how long it took for the AHR to address this at all as a piece of history. But then when I stumbled on this piece, I was delighted because it crystallized several of the most important aspects of the way historians have written about this history. So first, it's an essay by Isaiah Berlin, who was by 1949, one of the more well-known historian philosophers, particularly of 19th century Russia. He wrote about Alexander Herzen, who in some ways was an ideological progenitor of Russian socialism. Mm -hmm. But Berlin was also well-known in the early years of the Cold War for trying to uphold a kind of liberal in-between position, a plague on both their houses. So (laughs) Berlin, and and a major figure. So I was very excited Mm -hmm. to see an essay by him. And then the book he reviews, it's a long review essay, Mm -hmm. was a very well-known at the time, but now largely dead, uh, uh, triple biography of those three figures, of Lenin, Trotsky, and Stalin, by a man named Bertram Wolf, who had been a founder of the American Communist Party back in 1919, but by 1949 had become an anti-communist. So you've got communism, anti-communism, and liberalism all wrapped up in this treatment in 1949 of the how one writes about the Bolshevik Revolution, the very year, of course, that the Soviets got their hands on the atomic bomb and, mm. and oh, demonstrated. Boy. I don't know whether this came out before or after that, but mm. so this is an, an interesting moment for this to appear, I would say. Yeah, it's, it is interesting. I think uh, I did a little digging um, um, with, with Berlin just because the, he, he notes, well, in Berlin's way, he takes, I think, Plekhanov's side in 1903, I think, uh, which is kind of kind of becomes the middle of the road side at, at some point, which is standard, I, I guess. But there's a, a thing he he says that uh, Plekhanov says, if that's close to how you pronounce that. You're asking the wrong person. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> that uh, somebody asks Plekhanov if um, everything bends to the revolution, right? And and of course, there's uh, Latin in here that I won't be able to pronounce either, but basically saying, yes, you know, every, everything must bend to the revolution. Um, Berlin uh, notes that he's done this ungrammatically in the essay, mm, for, yes, <laughs> which, is, yes. which is, again, uh, sort of a typical kind of thing to say. But he also repeats the same story in a 1950 essay in Foreign Affairs ah. and calls it Splendid Disregard for Grammar that time, which is interesting. Uh, but that piece also runs in Walter Lippmann's 1955 book. Um, I forget what the name of it is, but it's a, it's a book of essays as hmm. well. Well, so. you've done more research. Well, uh, because you, because know, of, right. well, it was because of right. what you did. It was like, what does this mean in history for how we talk about things? Not so much what does the Russian Revolution actually mean, right. but how it is that Berlin is framing it right. as well. And so this is really the 1950s and kind of the Anglo-American intellectual world anyway. This is a key example of trying to carve out what Schlesinger called the vital center. Right, a, a version of Anglo-American or Western liberalism right. that wouldn't fall prey to the dangers of fascism, just recently defeated, right. but also would avoid the what was regarded as kind of the fanatical and absolutist tyranny 
of communist regimes. And then the debate that emerged in that period was precisely whether this was an artifact of Stalin's machinations after Lenin's death or whether such fanaticism, absolutism, and totalitarianism, as they would have called it, mm-hmm. really had its root in in the original revolution in Leninist ideology well, and a Marxist the practice ideology. Of the suppose, well, then right. they would read right, it all the way right. back we gotta, yeah, into nineteenth-century Marxism. We got to tar exactly. Marx while we're at right. it, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> let's, well, let's take a break. Uh, we'll listen to Hans Eisler's Lenin Requiem, completed in nineteen thirty-seven. The work is in nine movements and is composed for alto and baritone solo, mixed choir and orchestra with a libretto by Bertolt Brecht. Hans Eisler, who died in 1962, was an Austrian composer. He's best known for composing the national anthem of the German Democratic Republic and for his long artistic association with Brecht Brecht, and for scores he wrote for films. After 1933, Eisler's music and Brecht's poetry were banned by the Nazi party. Both artists went into exile. Eisler traveled for a number of years, number of years, working in Prague, Vienna, Paris, London, Moscow, Spain, Mexico, and Denmark. He made two visits to the U.S. on speaking tours. In 1938, Eisler managed to emigrate to the U.S. with a permanent visa. We'll have more about Eisler at the next break, and more with Alex Lichtenstein on the histo- historiography of the 1917 Russian Revolution. When we come back. <laughs> Support for WFHB comes from The Limestone Post, an online culture and lifestyle magazine for Bloomington and beyond. Explore articles, photo essays, and videos on the arts, outdoors, local history, community events, and all the topics that make Bloomington such a great place to live. Limestone Post, writers with a voice, photographers with a vision. Online at limestonepost.com. So wird erzählt, ein Soldat der Totenwache zu seinen Kameraden. Ich wollte es nicht glauben, ich wollte es nicht glauben. Ich ging hinein, wo er liegt und sprach zu ihm, Iljitsch, Iljitsch. Die Ausbeuter kommen, er rührte sich nicht. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show is The Past is Uncertain. My guest for this first half of the show is Alex Lichtenstein, a professor in the history department at Indiana University and editor of the American Historical Review. We're talking historiography and the 1917 Russian Revolution. Alex, you said you had a story about uh, Eisler you might want to share. Well, yeah. <coughs> as a historian, I'm interested in memory as well. And of course, that's very important in terms of thinking about 1917. So I think it's Hans Eisler, not his brother Gerhard, mm-hmm. who's buried in the Socialist Cemetery in East Berlin. And I was there this summer. 
And it's a fascinating spot because you have a number of socialist heroes buried there. Eisler himself, who ended up going back to East Berlin in the 50s uh, during the Cold War, but also Rosa Luxemburg, Mm. who is a famous martyr of revolution in Germany in 1919 and also a well-known antagonist of Lenin's in terms of who should make the revolution the elite leadership like the Bolsheviks or the masses, the ordinary people from below. Every January 15th, I'm told, the death of uh, the date of the death of Rosa Luxemburg in 1919, 10,000 people still show up at this uh, socialist cemetery to wow. celebrate Luxembourg's legacy. So that is kind of a, a, another memory or legacy of 1917, but kind of a, a counter-Leninist moment, right. but one that's still in the socialist tradition. So those sort of memorial moments always mm-hmm. capture my my imagination. And again, that when I dig into back issues of our journal, those are the kind of things I'm looking for. Yeah, we're going to uh, look into a little bit more of that historiography as well. I'll, I'll make another note quickly, just in, to think of where 1917 ends up in some sense, right? So uh, mm-hmm. a, a major player in the revolution or sort of trying to not have a revolution happen the way the Bolsheviks are going is is Kerensky. I forget his first name, but Alexander Kerensky. Kerensky. He becomes right. like Minister of War, and he's, he's uh, in the Mievo book, he's like He's like a born performer, all these kinds of things, right? He turns out to to actually come to the U.S. He's in the U.S. for, um, I guess, from like the late 40s or 50s on till he dies in 1970. He's a uh, like, uh, I guess, a kind of staple of the Hoover Institute. As yeah, well. in fact, one of my colleagues, or former colleagues, Alex Rabinowitz, who mm-hmm. used to teach at Indiana University and is really one of the preeminent historians of the Bolshevik Revolution itself, day by day, how it unfolded, mm-hmm. how February, the kind of overthrow of the czarist regime in which Kerensky himself was instrumental, how that then morphed into a far more radical uh, revolution, a world-shaking uh, revolution by the Bolsheviks, led by Lenin and the Bolsheviks nine months later. So <clears throat> Alex Rabinowitz has, has told me that he, when he was younger, met Kerensky. He I'm did. not sure in what, what capacity. Wow. So uh, Kerensky is often seen as the goat of the story, whether you're coming <laughs> from right or left. If you're right. coming from the right, Kerensky is seen as as kind of bumbling and ineffective and therefore opening the road up to what we regard as the fanatical Bolsheviks. And of course, if you're regarded, if you're coming from the left, Kerensky was someone, is regarded as someone who was constantly trying to hold the tide mm-hmm. against the inevitable, uh, more radical revolution, which he had helped usher in kind of inadvertently in, mm-hmm. in February 1917. But either way, he never comes off too well in, in the narratives of the left or the right, I would say. He must come off all right in uh, being, uh, at least from maybe the middle right of the Hoover Institute? Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah. it would be interesting to see what people like Isaiah Berlin had to say about him yeah, because yeah, he was in some way. He, it's important to remember that Kerensky himself, I forget which faction or party he belonged to, mm-hmm. but he was a socialist within the Russian uh, moment then. Right. I mean, Lenin and the Bolsheviks were just one wing right, of right. a very uh, divided and split array of radical left-wing socialist mm-hmm. parties that, that uh, helped make both revolutions. So one of the things we have to understand is how and why the Bolsheviks came to have the, the upper hand by October. Yeah, hard to do, hard to follow. <laughs> yes. Uh, you really need a scorecard for <laughs> you these do, folks, You really do. Yeah. There probably are uh, you know, uh, baseball card type things for this as well. So maybe we should do that. But uh, let's, uh, before we run out of time, because it'll happen quickly here, uh, there is an arc of um, 
of what's happening, right? In, in the historical review, there's an arc of how how it goes, how history changes as as the time changes. Right, right? very much so. So, of course, as Berlin pointed out, or as Berlin's essay is symptomatic, you know, one would often focus on the leadership or try to pigeonhole the revolution into a, a right wing, a left wing, or a liberal narrative. But by the 1980s, once what we would call a historiographic revolution in social history, that is historians working on all kinds of topics from early modern England to contemporary France, we're looking at ordinary people and how ordinary people made history. And that then allowed Russian historians, Soviet historians, to go into the archives and to try, and, and I must say the Hoover Institution collected a lot of these archives. It was a right-wing, is a right-wing outfit, mm-hmm. but it collected a lot of papers. And those sort of papers of workers' organizations, women's organizations, peasants' organizations, uh, allowed historians to dig a little deeper into ordinary people, the people who were carrying out strikes and factory occupations between February and October 1917, and whose social energy the Bolsheviks were able to capitalize on. And so that really, I think, changed the way history was written. And I discovered in the journal three or four articles that very much brought that social history of increasing social polarization and workers' activism to the fore. And so that pushed, I think correctly, the great figures like um, Trotsky and Lenin in particular into the into the background and brought ordinary Russian people who wanted desperately for the war to end, for World War I to end, for uh, their, their work to no longer be exploited and for their landlords to no longer take all the grain they grew. It brought them to the forefront of the narrative of the revolution. And that's been the biggest change, I think, in the way it's been written in the mm-hmm. past 50 years. Yeah, but uh, obviously people still cling to those particular bogeymen as well. It's part of how we frame uh, the, the sort of mass understanding of what capitalism and communism is, about what Marxism is, about what Leninism is. We we have maybe no real uh, trickle out into the population in terms of how we understand these concepts. You and, and your colleagues, uh, people who pay attention to this particular world uh, of history and research and make these arguments may have some sort of change in how you how you understand history. How do the rest of us get to understand history? Our, st- our student text, the, the, the textbooks at Bloomington High School South here? Right. Right. <clears throat> well, nice example. The best example uh, that I read in this centenary year was by Catherine Merridale, and it's called Lenin on the Train. Mm. And so that simultaneously is a very nice biographical tale of Lenin's experience. He wasn't even in Russia during the mm-hmm. February Revolution. So how he got from Switzerland, where he was in exile across war-torn Europe and arrived at the Finland station in St. Petersburg, Leningrad, it was called St. Petersburg then, and was thrown into the maelstrom of the revolution. So that book nicely combines mm. focus on Lenin, which is necessary. The revolution would not have happened without him. I think that's for sure. Mm-hmm. And yet also gives you a very powerful sense of how Lenin also was responding to real facts on the ground, real right. facts not made by the Bolshevik leadership or the Menshevik leadership, but real facts made right. by ordinary people, factory workers, women in the streets, peasants, and soldiers. And yeah. that's uh, that was a nice piece of history that combined that what we would call history from above or great man history mm-hmm. with the social history of ordinary people from below. And that's the way the Russian Revolution is being understood mm-hmm. by most historians now, or at least I'd like to think so. Ah, well, it is a, it is an, um, it's an unbelievable time, and it's, a, it's an unbelievable thing to try to get your head around. <laughs> so we're trying. We are trying, trying. and we'll continue to try. Getting into the archives is the key, and sometimes those are open and sometimes they're less open. True that. Also uh, sometimes blocked by uh, corporate... 
companies who put out these things. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes. but I think it also has to do with political regimes. The archives sure, in Russia opened up for a while. Now uh, Putin and his henchmen are making them less accessible. Repoliticizing it again, yeah. as, as yeah. I think we would say. Yeah. Well, uh, that's going to have to be all, and we should have done it for an hour, Alex. So, all right. Well, so thank you, Doug. It's always a pleasure. Right. And uh, I love the Billy Bragg music you began with. So <laughs> Well, we'll end inspired. with Billy Bragg as well. Not right now, but at the end of the program, we're going to have another Billy Bragg, Isler on the Go, which is uh, um, uh, Woody Guthrie lyrics. So, so uh, Alex Lichtenstein is a professor of history at IU, editor of American Historical Review, author most recently with his brother, of a book of photo essays called Marked, Unmarked, Remembered, A Geography of American Memory, published by the University of West Virginia Press, right? That's right. And Alex will be on the show later in the year. In to December. Talk, to talk, we'll talk about, about it. Yeah. Great. Thanks again, Alex All right, Thank you, Doug. Bye-bye. It's time for another break. We'll continue listening to Hans Eisler's Lenin, Requiem. Recall Eisler's music was banned in Nazi Germany as he was a Jewish communist working with Bertolt Brecht, whose work was also banned. In 1938, Eisler emigrated to the United States. In the USA, Eisler composed music for various documentary films and for eight Hollywood film scores, two of which were nominated for Oscars. When Interchange returns, our focus will be on the political development of Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov, better known as Lenin. Stay with us. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. For the second half of The Past is Uncertain, we'll turn to a pre-recorded interview I did via Skype with Lars Lee about N. Lenin. The N stands for nothing, apparently. Lenin can be lauded as the founder of a new world order of possibility for all people in the formerly Tsarist Russia, and as readily be excoriated as the revolutionary theorist and leader who prepared the way for Joseph Jugashvili, or Stalin. Lars Lee is a scholar who lives in Montreal. His books include Bread and Authority in Russia, 1914-1921, Lenin Rediscovered, What is to be Done, and a short biography titled Lenin, published by Reaction Books. We begin with the man who wasn't yet Lenin, but the brother of Alexander Ulyanov, a martyr in the fight against Tsarism, hanged by the state for participating in an assassination attempt. This is a foundational event in the life of the future Bolshevik leader. You begin the book saying Lenin isn't Lenin. You know, that Lenin is a, a pen name in, in large regard and then becomes a persona uh, yeah. that Lenin takes on. Uh, so do you want to start there before we go yeah. into Alexander? Yeah. Let's take it their common last name, Ulyanov. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'll start off with saying that I sort of 
uh, discovered when I was uh, and got interested in the question of uh, the fact that he never referred to himself as Vladimir Lenin. Uh, we all know that now is the Vladimir Lenin. You pick up any book on the topic, you'll <laughs> say, uh, now I come to the figure of Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. Ilyich is a, a patronymic, so that's his, uh, that's his uh, father's name, which is Ilya. Somewhere around 1901 or two, he adopted this pen name. He had several, and you continue to use several, but the one that he, you know, it's like a, it's just like a pen name, like Mark Twain or something mm-hmm. like that. And the end uh, was uh, never, it was just N. Lennon. And that's what you saw. And uh, um, the N could either stand for uh, sort of not Lennon or or a lot of people assumed it meant Nikolai. I don't think he ever called it Nikolai, but uh, but I don't think he protested either. When he's like in head of state, he signs his uh, decrees. Uh, Vladimir Ulyanov, and then in parentheses Lenin. Hmm. So, so, so I have a sense that he kept the, that he had a sense of the, that they were these were that he was Vladimir Ulyanov, and that Lenin was his was his yeah your public persona. Mm-hmm. And one reason I think, at least one reason I think it's important is that his relationship with his brother, because um, his his brother was sort of ended up being a revolutionary martyr, and uh, so Lenin later on when he was. You know, a young man making his career, people say, oh, he's the brother of, of Alexander Vujanov. I mean, that's something. Alexander, who's a, Sasha, who's a great, great uh, student, was working, I think, on a, a thesis about worms. <laughs> uh, and uh, he uh, he gets involved in a plot to kill the Tsar. Uh, they, uh, they probably wouldn't have succeeded, but in any event, they, they messed up and they were arrested and, and they were all executed. So this may obviously made a huge impact on, on Lennon, who was his younger brother and uh, was 14, I guess, at the time, or something like that. But 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 how, you know? And uh, what I what I uh, feel is that uh, one impact on it was that he searched around for something that would have helped Sasha succeed. Mm-hmm. And what that was was a mass base. I mean, so if you, and the reason I make this argument is that I kept running across comments as I read through Lennon all through his life, where he would say, we had lonely heroes. He didn't name, he never referred to Alexander by name or anything. But he said, we, we had these lonely martyrs, these lonely heroes, the isolated heroes, they fought and they went down. But now we're going to, uh, now we have a, a party with a mass base and everything like this, and we're going to, we're going to succeed. So I think that was that, that, that was sort of the deep connection with, with, with his older brother, Yonah, and and I think in like in the 1890s, he was searching around for a political home. And what he was searching for was something that would give him the promise of finding that uh, uh, mass space for a revolutionary movement. And he found it in social democracy, which was the, you know, the socialist worker uh, parties in, in, in Europe, and especially in Germany, all this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So um, you mentioned um, social democracy or social democrats, um, and we need to understand that term, obviously, as it's cer- certainly not one that we we right. think of here in the U.S. or we imagine Bernie Sanders as a social oh, democrat. Yeah. Uh, Lenin and Sanders are not the same. <laughs> right? Yeah, uh, yeah, or Sweden, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what happened was, there was something called social democracy. The way I, so, so I, I don't know exactly how much sense this makes, but pre-1914, 1914 is when it sort of started breaking up, but pre-1914, social democracy was the 
socialist part of a wide democratic movement. They called it the democracy. And uh, some of it was just fighting for uh, political equality. Uh, but others, the social democrats, were fighting more for, for socialism. So they, they were radical. Now, afterwards, social democrats began to be the socialists who are not tyrannical. We are not, we're not Soviet, you know. We're, 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 so so the, the emphasis got, got to be on democracy. The main point is, is that they were, um, it was an international movement. It was, um, it was, it was something like communism was later. Uh, it had its flagship party, which was the German party, like the communist, the Russian party became later. So, so the, the point to bring out is that it, uh, it was not the sort of, I don't want to say namby-pamby, but, you know, we sort of see it as the nice, mellow, mm-hmm. Swedish. Uh, it just wasn't that. And, uh, and in particular, uh, I think I mentioned to you that Lenin identified himself as revolutionary social democrat. And that has specific meaning because the, the social democrats did break up long about 1900 and sort of they started moving apart. And there was one side that was what became later social democracy, which was, was heading toward reformism. And then there was the other side with people like Lenin in Russia, Kautsky and Rosa, Karl Kautsky and Rosa Luxemburg in Germany. Um, in every country, there were these more radical people who, uh, who were hoping for revolution soon, who, who, uh, who believed it was coming, uh, who, in a period of, of turmoil and crisis, uh, were, were, were still being radical. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. I'm speaking with Lars Lee, author of Lenin, a short critical biography about the political development of Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov. The next step, however, is that the, the, the division between revolutionary social democrat in Western Europe and in Russia. What's the difference? Well, we've been talking about it earlier, was that uh, uh, in order to carry, to, to, to get a political freedom. So the social democratic uh, was famous for its uh, party culture, including tons of newspapers, tons of rallies, tons of sort of cultural activities from biking to choral societies to chess things, you know. Uh, and so they, they developed the workers, uh, a book on the great book on the topic is called The Alternative Culture. Hmm. And uh, so, but to carry this mass agitation out, uh, this day to day, day in, day out, uh, you, you need uh, political freedom. Because, you know, you can't, um, you can't do it really if you're sneaking around from corner to corner and can't, and have to use pseudonyms and uh, have to publish your papers abroad. So uh, let's move into Lenin's influences. Uh, in the book, you say Lenin, as much as loved and fell in love with and loved Marx and Engels in particular, and then you move into his, uh, I guess, um, somewhat fraught relationship with Karl Kotsky's work, but the pre and post World War One. Um, so let's. When does Lenin discover Marx and Engels and decide that that's the framework he needs to kind of apply to Russia? And when does he discover him? Well, it's this period I told you about uh, when I think when he's searching for uh, a path. Uh, there's a famous story about about Sasha, where, where he's supposed to have said when he heard the execution, "Another way, we'll find another way, Sasha." Well, maybe he didn't do it right away, but that's that's what he did. He was looking around, trying to find uh, trying to find a path forward, and uh, so he came across Marx and Engels, who are you know great writers and great thinkers and. Uh, and, but I think he went, he, he got to them through social democracy, which was the great Marx-centered movement of the time. I mean, there were people in Russia who were Marxists, 
but were not revolutionary at all. They, they took Marx's method or his economics or talked about, said he was right about capitalism. Lenin went uh, through uh, social democracy, uh, the, which was a, a mass party that had a strong sense of worker mission, had a strong sense that the workers, the proletariat, were going to be the one. So the, it's a sense of historical mission. Of uh, Again, it's inspiring. It's uh, So that's where he is in the 1890s. And he's been a provincial, but he finally goes to Petersburg um, to, to continue his law studies. But so he starts getting in touch with workers and so forth. And um, so on the one hand, he's always an organizer from the very beginning. On the other hand, he's, I think you said earlier, reading like mad, mm-hmm. and sort of, uh, you know, the expert on, on, on Marx and Engels. But that's what also where Karl Kautsky comes in, because back then uh, he sort of summed up what Marx meant uh, for social democracy, which he had his phrase, for example, social democracy is the merger of socialism, the idea of socialism and the workers movement. Uh, so the workers are fighting for their improvement in their lives, but they begin to see that socialism is the is is the is the way to do it. Mm-hmm. He, he read Kautsky and he thought that Kautsky was the best was the best interpreter. Up to 1914, um, it's rather remarkable uh, that Kautsky is sort of the is I call him an honorary Bolshevik mm-hmm. because in the split between the two, he not only sided with the Bolsheviks but he wrote the best uh, exposition of it. Mm-hmm. Then. Even more paradoxically, uh, he gave, sort of gave uh, Lenin the framework for understanding the global situation, which he, which Lenin himself used after 1914. To, to finish up with Lenin and, and Kautsky, what happened was that Kautsky, 1914, seemed to sort of go to the other side. He sort of he's he's sort of not fighting strongly against the, the governments enough. So Lenin, he sort of on you, I close the iron door. You know, he's <laughs> he's really angry at him. The reason he's so mad at Kautsky is because Kautsky's betraying what he wrote before. Right. And, uh, so I call it a love-hate relationship. And I have documented uh, that he continues saying this. He, he just had a – he couldn't get it out of his system mm-hmm. uh, uh, that Kautsky was like this. The next step in this fraught, as you put it very well, <laughs> the relationship is is that Kautsky, who probably never liked Lenin personally. <laughs> and there's a lot of like a lot of people that probably never liked Lenin, right? Yeah. That's right, yeah. yeah. Sort of becomes a, a big critic of the of the of the Bolshevik Revolution, mm-hmm. and uh, writes and in fact dedicates the rest of his life. To Kautsky does. Life. Oh, okay. The Ka- the Kautsky was a hero, though, and then it's part of the part of the arc of the, of your book as well, and to the way you understand Lenin's approach and what you say is a a continuity throughout is this heroic scenario. You yep. want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, that that was my name then, uh, and uh, and it's fair enough. I think when you looked at the personal level, it's the idea of 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 being able to inspire uh, and lead uh, other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the most important example of this is uh, well, there's there's all sorts of examples. Uh, sort of Marx inspires people, and uh, sort of advanced workers. Advanced workers go off and form a party. The party goes off and spreads the message to wider sessions of the workers. And it goes on and on, and so th- so it's both pol- it's both political and personal because you yourself are going out and and trying to inspire people mm-hmm. uh, with the with this image. It's time for our final break. Again, we'll listen to a segment from Eisler's Lenin Requiem. Eisler's promising career in the U.S. was interrupted by the Cold War. He was one of the first artists placed on the Hollywood blacklist by the film studio bosses. In two interrogations by the House Committee on Un-American Activities, the composer was accused of being the Karl Marx of music and 
the chief Soviet agent in Hollywood. He was deported in 1948 and left delivering this statement, quote, I leave this country not without bitterness and infuriation. I could well understand it when in 1933 the Hitler bandits put a price on my head and drove me out. They were the evil of the period. I was proud at being driven out. But I feel heartbroken over being driven out of this beautiful country in this ridiculous way." Unquote. We'll hear more of my interview with Lars Lee on Lenin when Interchange returns on WFHB. back. I'm Doug Storm. This is Interchange. This is our final segment and we'll close The Past is Uncertain with guest Lenin scholar Lars Lee discussing what we get wrong about the bogeyman to the capitalist and the bourgeoisie, Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov, or Lenin. But first we take a look at the concept of conspiratia, or the threads strategy, which seeks to undermine the existing order through secret networks of party education, something quite different from conspiratorial acts like the one Lenin's brother Alexander, or Sasha, attempted and was executed for. Uh, there's another word in Russian, zagovor, which, which can be also translated conspiracy. So uh, a zagovor, a, con- a conspiracy as we would understand the word, the, the distinction is that a zagovor is trying to keep it secret as possible. You know, We don't want anyone to know about it. We, 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 so you're cutting yourself off from people. You want your secret little group. Whereas conspiracia is a, a way of getting the message out. It's mm. a way of making connections that aren't broken up. Uh, and it's so it's really a set of techniques. Uh, and and everybody, it's not Lenin's deal. It's everybody is uh, who's an undergrounder has to do this sort of thing. And there's a sort of set of rules that, uh, like, you never uh, call them by their real name or you don't, you know, sort of, they're common sense rules, but they had to be worked out over time. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the worst things you can do is violate these rules and, and endanger, endanger people. Right. Uh, so, or, you know, how to get the newspaper in from abroad. You know, yeah, newspapers and newspapers these pamphlets are, are fascinating. The, the, yeah. the way in which the newspaper and the press itself creates the networks you'll use for the next steps uh, as yeah. well is pretty fascinating. Yes. He's uh, assuming that there's going to be a, an eager, receptive audience because – so the, we said earlier, and this was like in 1901 or two, the peasants are already doing the doing, doing their thing. The, the the workers are having mass strikes and so forth. So so Lenin assumes that that people are 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 ready to hear this message. And furthermore, they're, it's going to be very good for them to hear that we're not just striking here; they're striking here and here and here. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not just the workers who are mad; everybody's mad. The nationality's mad. So that gives you a sense that you know we can move forward. <laughs> 
the standard view of, of Lenin, that he thought that the workers uh, were inherently reformist or uh, uh, would, would refuse the revolutionary message, and therefore he built a party that would sort of didn't need them as almost as it were. But it's a really, really just the opposite. He uh, he's always running on about how 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 ready they are, and uh, and if there's any problem, it's you. You're not you, the the local party people who aren't doing your job right. You're not doing your mm-hmm, job. Mm-hmm. Part of the the difficulty in this country, and one thing that I'd I'd like to to sort of do with you first here is to try to distinguish the Lenin that has been tangled up with right. Stalin, right? Tangled up right. with the future USSR and the famine and the murder, you know, murder of the, an entire class. So we're stuck still with the idea that, you know, that Stalin is a continuation of Lenin. You know, that, that Stalin is, is born of Lenin's practices and policies, etc. But um, if you could help us disentangle that, uh, that would be great. Right. First, I'm going to say some complications before I get sure, into sure, right, sure. the bottom lines. Mm-hmm. One is that I, is that I think that Stalin uh, wanted and saw himself as a good Leninist. Mm. There's two essential things uh, about Stalin that you would want. First is, is collectivization that is forced, that it's a mass uh, attack on the peasantry and so forth. Uh, Lenin went out of his way to say this is, to, as it were, ahead of time, to say this is absolutely unacceptable. We don't even think about it. This is... Uh, the Russian word bizobrazia, which means scandalous. Mm-hmm. It made no sense, you know, uh, for a Marxist to say, I'm going to use force to get to a higher, higher point. Right. That's not the way of Marxist. That's totally not Marxist. Now, again, when I start talking about force in the peasants, I have to state that they used a lot of force to get grain, which is my first book was about the grain collections, mm-hmm. uh, to, to get the army, the Red Army. But, that was forced to use to win the Civil War. Right. And the economy going. And it was, and therefore, in that sense, pro-peasant, you know? It, they were fighting the Civil War to keep the land for the peasants. And they believed that. And, and I think they convinced enough peasants mm-hmm. that they managed to win the Civil War. So, so there's a big distinction between the force used in the Civil War, uh, from the Bolshevik's point of view and from the peasants' point of view, and what Stalin did, which was to go in, uh, to, 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 to put in collective farms and to, as you said, destroy a fight. Right. And so, you, so Stalin, you gives you the sense of, uh, you know, it, taking all the morality out of uh, out of it, if, if you want to. But the idea that you could just kill your way to the future, which is, I guess, the the common sense of communism for many people after this, right? Partly, part, part, partly that's true. With Stalin, a lot of what he did, he thought was justified in terms of not of, uh, of jumping into the, uh, you know, the the, the new world, mm-hmm. but ready for invasion to get to, to, to develop. Of course, that doesn't, I don't know if that makes it any better because, <laughs> right. you know, I mean, to uh, go around saying everybody's a spy, to go around right. uh, cutting, knocking off your best farmers, uh, doing this and that. The other thing, you know, you can condemn him. Uh, so, so my, I'm only saying is that if you want to understand the, the 30s, mm-hmm. uh, there, uh, it, there was, uh, it wasn't the sort of, we're, we're jumping into a huge new world. It was, it was a sort of, a, we're defending revolution we're moving mm-hmm. forward uh, unfortunately there are a lot of spies there are a lot of uh, saboteurs around mm-hmm. this is Doug Storm on Interchange I'm speaking with Lars Lee author of Lenin a short critical biography about the political development of Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov
Well, so it also seems like there are, there's, there's just a lot of difficulty with trying to move past these this kind of um, um, point in history where 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 things, as you say, uh, and Lenin says as well. You know, he has to kind of stop and say things have things are going wrong now, or thing. You know, I didn't yeah. see these particular things. It doesn't fit my particular framework anymore. And and having to try to figure out what what direction to take at that point. Um, and one of the problems it, that you point out uh, is a cultural deficit. You write about, which I think is an interesting thing too, especially again, as you say, coming from the perspective of Lenin. As the son of, uh, you know, an education reformer, and you talk yeah. about, um, is it Kukara strategy in that in oh, yeah. that role too? Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Kukarka. Okay, uh, and this yeah. is uh, translated as female cook, basically, right? You know, and it's important because often you will get that the famous statement saying, uh, "Let every cook let let every cook administer the state." It's important that it's a female cook, That's right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A reference to uh, to a sort of. Uh, Famously scandalous statement that a czar's bureaucrat made back in the uh, 1880s, I think, uh, saying uh, we don't want the children of Kukarki, or children of these people mm. in our, you know, don't want these lower classes. Right, right, right. Yeah, and but this this is one of the things where there's like actually continuity after mm-hmm. uh, uh, the commitment to mass education, mm-hmm. and, and this is sort of the I call it sometimes the promise that they kept. Mm. Uh, they said there'd be mass education and mass mobility, and there was. And, and there was education for women. Which is well, so what was the issue with uh, when when you talk about the cultural deficit? Is that it seems like that's a, a thing that couldn't go forward because there plausibly was no imagination about what could be next. You know, you have to sort of educate for what can happen next in your yeah. in your class, in your society, and your culture. And if you don't have the the sort of a if you don't have an, an ability to to read, for one thing, I suppose, you know, right. if you don't have the ability to understand a different way of life through imagination or through the cultural imagination, what can be next for you, you know? And yeah. so this is, I think, a, a pretty important point, it seems like to me. Let's connect what you were just saying up to what we've been talking all along. Uh, hegemony, leading the peasants, uh, uh, inspiring people. So what I see happening is that he had this commitment for the uh, for a scenario of the of the proletariat being the peasantry to accomplish not socialism but vast democratic reforms. So what happens after the revolution is that, as I say, in 1919 they lost one alley where they lost one reserve that they were hoping for. That they were hoping for help from the, from from abroad by the European proletariat. That didn't happen. But they they decided that they could move forward with the peasants uh, to socialism. That's the big change. Hmm. It's a big change, but you can see the connection with what they had before. They, uh, so that's what this cultural stuff is all about. And that's why when you read Lenin's last writings, uh, there's these ones that are on like school teachers, the rural school teachers, and ones on the cooperatives and ones on China. And it's all the same thing. We're, we're, we're going to inspire people. We're going to have these campaigns. We're going to, we're going back to what we were talking about social democracy. We're going to have vast campaigns of literacy. We're going so, so there was that side of inspiring. One thing about large campaigns is that when you have the state doing it, you have ten, you monopolize, right. and uh, so 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 they they made a gamble that we're going to have um, uh, these vast campaigns, mass education, so forth, but we're not going to allow any. The, the great paradox is no political freedom. Right, right, right. To to yes. So this this is an interesting paradox, and it's a yeah. a continuing one, and it one it's one that makes sense right as we think about it so you know if if you if you cast your your um your revolutions forward to cuba 
right? You have the, yeah. the same kind of uh, response to it. You know, if you, you, if you're going to move forward and change not just the world, but the way we think about the world, yeah. right? You have to not let opportunism come back yeah. in. This is obviously the crux and the paradox of all of this kind of change, right? Yeah, well, what happened with, uh, with communism was, um, you know, um, uh, so, yeah, it did bog down uh, more and more. Uh, the language sounds great, but it just doesn't listen to what's going on around you. Mm -hmm. I compare it to like a, a balloon that's fully losing air. It isn't like the people were all cynical, but but they were they were just they, when you hear the same inspiring slogans again and again, sure. and again it doesn't mean anything. So so and also uh, although you know the Soviet Union was moving far away far away from Stalin, and with Gorbachev it was moving in a different direction, still the uh, the legacy is not one that makes you want to go the path of that kind of state power. Right. And then finally, one, one other thing is that back in 1910, you could be optimistic because you saw a mass movement, mm -hmm. uh, a large mass parties that had these revolutionary messages. Now, we look back now and see that they weren't as revolutionary as they thought. But that's the dilemma, of course. If you, can you be both mass and revolutionary? If you can give me a sense of, <clears throat> I guess, where or how you think we get Lenin wrong, and if there's if Lenin is useful for us in any way. I see him as someone who uh, was essentially trying to be constructive uh, and had to deal with problems that you and I are luckily never going to face. Uh, and so I uh, wouldn't cut some flack, because I don't think he was a cynical power map person. Now, is it Lenin today? So we have to take a step back. And talk about, uh, sort of see him as someone committed to spreading the message, to being creative about ways of doing it, about uh, um, uh, a, a commitment to uh, getting people to be able to run their own lives and so forth. Now, uh, when I say that, of course, I have to sort of admit to the, some of the problems at the end. <laughs> right. He, did sort of, uh, he was running a one-party uh, dictatorship. Right. Uh, uh, so we want to avoid that. He's a counter model. Buys the wrong to go. Buys the wrong to move. Brother is on the vinegar truck, and I don't know what I'll do. That's our show. We'll close as we opened with a song by Billy Bragg. This one off of the collaboration album with Wilco called Mermaid Avenue which put previously unheard lyrics written by American folk singer Woody Guthrie to music. Eisler on the Go is about the HUAC blacklisting of Hans Eisler. Thanks to Alex Lichtenstein and to Lars Lee for being with us for The Past is Uncertain, the first in a three-part series on the Russian Revolution of 1917. Next up, Jugashvili, or Joseph Stalin. And after that, Lev Bronstein, or Leon Trotsky. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon is assistant producer. Our studio engineer is Bryce Martin. And executive producer is Wes Martin. Stay tuned for Counterspin, followed by the Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on WFHB. Daddy on the hen house roof and I don't know what I'll do. I don't know what I'll do. I don't know what I'll do. Eyes was on the come and go And I don't know what I'll do Eyes were in the jail-o Eyes were back at home Round
Frank can scratch his head and cry And I don't know what I'll do I don't know what I'll do I don't know what I'll do Eyes are trying to come and go And I don't know what I'll do Eyes love him write music Eyes love him teach school Truman him don't play so good And I don't know what I'll do I don't know what I'll do